Support for MindShift comes from Landmark College. Its annual Summer Institute for Educators takes place June 25th through 27th. Registration is now open at landmark.edu slash LCSI. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Welcome to the MindShift Podcast, where we explore the future of learning and how we raise our kids. I'm Katrina Schwartz. And remember to speak with that kind of loud voice. Good morning. My name is Miranda Klein. I represent the good, hardworking people of Head Royce. Kids in this colorful first grade classroom are rehearsing for an upcoming play. Head Royce is a private school with a beautiful campus tucked on the hillside of a quiet neighborhood in the Oakland Hills. It's actually a little hard for me to reconcile the idyllic surroundings with the topic of this performance, which is about being homeless. For weeks, we've been studying homelessness with the guiding question, how does it feel to be invisible? These kids will probably never be homeless, but their teacher, Brett Turner, has worked with them to imagine what it would be like. I think that kids can handle a lot more nuance than we generally give them credit for. It's not your typical first-grade curriculum, to be sure. But that's the least of the startling topics Brett's covered this year. These six-year-olds have also discussed structural racism, microaggressions, and gender identity. And their study of homelessness included a discussion of institutionalized racism. Brett's goal is to help his students recognize privilege and power all around them. I'm starting to feel like being invisible might not feel all that great. Me too. This all seemed a little strange to me. I certainly wasn't exposed to these kinds of discussions until I was much older. And neither was Brett. He says that's because we're white. Not having to think about this stuff is a form of privilege. But still, the world is big and scary, and childhood is supposed to be a time of innocence. Is it right to expose kids to this stuff so early? Come on, everyone! On the other hand, power and privilege are all around us. We see it in the wage gap, in laws that prevent transgender people from serving in the military, in so many places. And it often plays out as racism. These are super hard things to talk about. Most adults aren't good at it. And I know from reporting in schools that a lot of teachers just don't want to go there. But would we all be better off if they did? Rather than sending adults back to school for sensitivity training, maybe it would be easier to start these lessons earlier with school kids. I first learned about Brett's decision to teach his first graders about race and privilege when I stumbled on an article he wrote for the organization Teaching Tolerance. Teachers of color have been bringing these issues into their classrooms for years, but 80% of teachers are white. And I wanted to see how he handled these issues, so I drove to Head Royce on a Wednesday and joined Circle Time. 
Half the kids in Brett's class are students of color. He's created a sweet and orderly classroom. There's the line of little backpacks and coats neatly hung in a row, the tiny tables and chairs that make me feel like a giant. The walls are covered in art and student writing. There are self-portraits, charts describing the writing process, and sound combinations helpful for new readers. Brett tries not to compartmentalize lessons about power and privilege. He uses them as teaching tools in some surprising ways. Like the day they learned to tally, Brett used gender inequality in Congress as the subject by having the kids count how many women were in the Senate versus the number of men. South Carolina. Two men. South Dakota. Two men. South Carolina, because they love South Carolina. Or when they studied money, a common topic in first grade, they noticed that only white men are pictured. You can talk about anything with kids. You can make anything accessible, no matter how uncomfortable or atrocious it may seem. Brett says at this age, kids are actually much better at discussing inequality than a lot of adults. It comes up on the playground all the time. Kids are primed to talk about fairness. I mean, if you've ever seen kids try to get into line and it, like who goes in front of who and cutting in line, like you'll, you'll know immediately that kids want everything to be fair. So it actually doesn't take that much for kids to enter into the conversation about racism and privilege. Speaking of fairness, the day I visit, I notice the kids are doing an art project about what it means to be a good leader. A key value they've identified is standing up for others. So I'm curious what you're going to draw for this one. Um, different people and different genders and races. And then there's going to be a person who's teasing two people who are different genders, who are friends and races. Mm, and then, so then, and then are, is one of the friends going to do something, say something? One of them are going to stand up from the other. They're drawing pictures and writing words that illustrate different elements of good leadership. I'm drawing include everyone, and I wrote, Hey, do you want to play with me? And this person said, yeah. yeah. Have, that's, fun. that's really nice when someone asks you that, right? Feels good. Yeah. yeah. And then it's cleanup time. I got 10 seconds to get where I'm going. Nine more seconds, I better start flowing. Many teachers of color have been tackling these issues in their classroom for a long time. When Brett started doing it, he was nervous that as a straight white guy, he didn't have the depth of understanding or the credibility to do it well. And the feedback from parents was mixed. Some parents thought it was totally inappropriate. Some even accused Brett of abusing his power to shape kids' minds. Others, like Carla Wicks, were glad Brett is taking this on. She called Brett a trailblazer. I remember he had a really nice overview of, you know, here's what the curriculum is like. We will be talking about privilege. We will be talking about race. 
we will be talking about all the isms because the children bring these topics into the classroom. Carla's daughter, Kendall, is in Brett Turner's class. Carla was surprised by his speech at back-to-school night, but impressed, too. I went up to him afterwards, I'll never forget, and I just said, wow, thank you for being courageous. Thank you. Um, Because I think if most human beings going through our education system had these conversations at this age, this early age, then we'd probably be in a different place than we are today. Carla is African-American. She knows from experience that whether or not adults talk about it, kids like hers grapple with their race from early on. She and her husband never had to plan a conversation around race because it comes up all the time at home. Like when Kendall had to make a self-portrait in preschool. It got her thinking about skin tone. She's like, well, mommy, your skin is, is white. Carla's definitely not white, but she is a lighter shade of brown than her daughter. She probed deeper, asking Kendall what made her say that. And then she said, um, well, some people think it's prettier. That's when it clicked for Carla that Kendall must be hearing messages about what makes someone beautiful, messages she didn't teach. So these are the conversations that we have as people of color very early on, all the time. She was five at the time. They notice everything. Carla's glad that Kendall's teacher, Brett Turner, is helping kids to process the world around them in an age-appropriate way. She hopes other teachers will follow his example. Then maybe they'll know how to handle situations, like the one that happened in her son's third grade class when they were reading a slave narrative. One of the other kids didn't understand, like, why are we reading this? Slavery's over. Um, And blurted it out in the class. And so my third grader, who's nine years old, said, well, this is important, and even though slavery may seem to be over, slavery is not over. We have a thing called police brutality, and it's another form of slavery. And the brutality happens to African-American boys and men. This is a nine-year-old who spoke up, was brave enough to say something, And, you know, not sure if the teacher was really prepared to handle that. Carla's proud of her son, but she doesn't think he should have to be the one to confront his classmates around issues of race. That's the teacher's job. What does it cost you to say hi? To give a little wave as you're passing by? What does it cost you to show that you see the people you pass by on the street? After the break, the story of Brett Turner's awakening and how the internet has responded to his methods. Stay with us. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now. Hi there, I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah from Throughline. 
If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Welcome back. Brett Turner says everything was magnified for him in 2016 when President Donald Trump won the election. You know, I feel like my blind spots are constantly being checked. And for me, even though I knew that Donald Trump had had run a campaign that was in part uh, based on xenophobia and, and whiteness, even though I knew all those things, I still felt really naive in my reaction to the election. He felt naive because, like a lot of white people, he was surprised. A surprise many people of color did not share. And he resolved to stop doing the comfortable thing and to teach about power and privilege. There was a point where I was like, I need to talk about identity every single day. And I need to talk about something related to anti-racism and being an upstander and noticing bias. I need to talk about it all the time. So we started to look for resources to help him. And he found some online and on social media. He realized it was up to him. If he didn't start teaching this stuff, who would? And really, if he was serious about building a better world, he needed to start earlier with his own kids. Actually, do you want to show Katrina the dress you picked out to wear for picture day? He's adapted his parenting style to include things he's doing in the classroom, even though at four and two, his kids, Alice and Louie, are still a little too young to really understand. Because she's not quite at the age where she's getting stuff from the media, we try to be as proactive as possible. And so we, you know, it's, it's very bumpy, but we try to talk about race and gender all the time. So Alice knows that she's white and that our family is white. Brett says proactively talking about race with a four-year-old leads to some uncomfortable situations. Alice is so young that often things come out jumbled. We were at Starbucks and we were in the thick of talking about a lot of racial stuff. And Alice looked at the barista and said, why are you not white? Brett and his wife were embarrassed and mumbled an apology to the woman. Later, a friend gave Brett a suggestion for what he could have said to the barista in that moment. One of the best things to say is, you know what? We are talking a lot about race right now at home and trying to teach Alice that race is a real thing that people live with. And she's saying a lot of things and trying to figure it out. Brett says stocking his home library with books showing lots of diverse characters helps jumpstart these conversations with Alice. You know, the nuances can get lost. Sometimes she'll say things like, um, Papa, all white people are bad. And all Black people and Asian people are, are great. Brett says it's natural for kids to approach these big questions with a simplistic lens. That's how their brains work at this age. When she gets older, I really, I mean, it's very important that we have more nuanced discussions of that. And things are not good and bad. Things are not black and white and things are not binary. 
But that is the way that kids begin, one option or the other. And then they can fold in a third option and a fourth and things can get gradually more minute and nuanced. All right, Alice, what song do you want to hear? Moon Shadow. All right. I'm being followed by a moon shadow. Moon shadow, moon shadow. A leaping and hopping on a moon shadow. But he's not stopping there. Encouraged by the results he's getting at home and in the classroom, Brett has started sharing his ideas with other teachers online. But he didn't anticipate his articles getting picked up by right-wing blogs. That's where things got nasty. I have been accused in person and much more frequently online of indoctrination, liberal agenda, um, ruining kids, raising kids to be sissies is a a big thing I see. You're raising kids to be, uh, to to react to every little thing and to be offended by everything um, and to be crippled by um, having to constantly keep track of what to be offended by. That's a message I see constantly. And there was a lot of hate. There were some comments that were like, you are fucking over children. There was one in, in particular that I, I either deleted or unsubscribed or made sure that I could not find. It was a, a comment that said something like, I feel so sorry for your kids and for your students for being under the influence of your, of your fucked up bullshit. Um, and it was just a screed. It was like this long thing about how I was uh, ruining the world and like give, scarring children for life. Aside from all the vitriol, he says these commenters clearly haven't spent much time in a first grade classroom because if they had they'd know that kids aren't crippled by difficult discussions. That fires kids up. And it makes kids want to make change. Um, And it makes kids want to break cycles. And it makes kids want to mess things up and to question. And to me and my experience and the experience of other educators that I've talked to, it doesn't come at the expense of any happiness Brett hopes that if kids start thinking and talking about these big issues early on, maybe they won't have the hang-ups we adults have. As a white woman, I don't think I really started to think about how my privilege affected my whole life until I got to college. That's a lot of unlearning to do. These first graders may even teach the adults in their lives a thing or two, like knowing that homelessness is connected to race and class and privilege. I want to say we are all grateful to the people all over Oakland and the world who don't have a place to call home. Maybe with a class play, for example. Thank you for letting us tell your story. Thank you for being patient with us. After all, stories can be some of the best windows into someone else's experience. And thank you to the audience for coming on this journey with us. The end. You're supposed to say it too. You're in. The end. For parents, there are best practices for talking to kids about these issues at home. Kids notice race, so don't shut them down if they bring it up. If you do, it sends the message that talking about race is taboo. 
talk about the achievements of diverse Americans, give age-appropriate facts about historical traumas like slavery, and focus on people's agency and activism. And obviously, this is a huge topic, so go to kqed.org race for a list of more resources you can use, including the ones Brett Turner finds helpful. On the next episode of the MindShift podcast, we visit two schools that are rethinking one of the most important times of the day for students, lunch. I don't eat lunch because it's kind of yucky. Trying to bring some joy back to a meal kids love to hate. MindShift is produced by Ki Sung and me, Katrina Schwartz. Our editor is Julia Scott. Seth Samuel is our sound designer. Julie Kane is our head of podcasts. Ethan Lindsay is executive editor for news. And Holly Kernan is KQED's chief content officer. Thank you so much to Brett Turner and the students and parents at Head Royce School, especially Carla Wicks and John Rosenson. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find the link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. <laughs>